Well, good morning, City Light South Church, and welcome to all of you who are joining this online gathering first Sunday in June. Thank you so much uh, for being a part of our church family and watching with us. We're in Mark chapter 8 this morning, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and, and flip open to Mark 8 or scroll there on your device. We're going to be in verse up to verse 26 um, this morning. And, and really, again, we're back with this central question that Mark is asking. Who, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question, it reveals the work of God, the work of his spirit that's going on in your heart. And it makes you ready for whatever it is that God has uh, for prepared for you to face today in this life and in the life to come. Uh, before we get into the passage, though, I want to spend just a, a couple of moments praying. I mean, this has been a big, heavy week uh, again. Uh, man, this year, has, there's just been a lot of things that have been kind of scrolling across our news feeds, a lot going on in the world that reminds us of how much we need God's presence and intervention, his power, his justice uh, to be in the world and in our own, in our own hearts. And so I want to take time as a community uh, to pray and even to lament what's going on in the world because it, it, it grieves the heart of God and, and we are grieved as well with what's going on. So join me now uh, as, we, as we pray. Lord God, we adore you this morning. We are, we, we, we have nothing, we can do nothing apart from you. Everything you do is good and right and beautiful and brings joy into the world, brings joy to our hearts. Lord, you, you bring more joy to us than when the grain and new wine abound. God, we thank you. We, we confess, Lord, that we often are looking for joy in, in all sorts of places. Lord, we, we sin because we were born in sin. Or we sin against you. We sin against other people. We confess that we have fallen short of your glorious standard. And yet we thank you that because of Jesus, because Jesus bore the penalty of our sin on the cross, that he, he turned your wrath away from us, from those who, who believe in you, that, that we might have eternal life, that we might be with you forever. Lord, and so we're assured of this because we know that Jesus died and, and rose again. And we thank you. Lord, we ask you for, to come and meet the needs of, uh, of our hearts and meet the needs of our world that is broken. Lord, if, if ever we've doubted the fact that humanity is broken, that we are, we are in rebellion against you and against all things that are good and right and just, Lord, then this week should uh, make that clear that what you've said to us in your word is true, that all of us have turned away God, we, we ask that you would bring love into your world where there's hatred, bring empathy where there's apathy, bring understanding where there's ignorance, and bring peace where there is violence. Lord, we ask that you, um, Lord, continue to expose our sin, continue to expose racist behavior and systems and structures dehumanizing behavior and systems and structures that, that affect 
and, and, and even brutalize people who are created in your image, people who you love, people who Jesus died for. Lord, may we be people that, that speak when, when we need to speak against such evil, that we listen when we need to listen, God. Help us to know how to promote and contribute to the flourishing of our neighbors. Even if it costs us, even if it doesn't bring immediate benefit to us, Lord, help it to, us to do it for your glory. Lord, help us to be agents of the, the gospel that we would speak to uh, people's eternal need, that the, the, their eternal flourishing can be made secure in Jesus alone. Help us to have renewed courage and energy and conviction to do that, but also help us to be concerned with people's flourishing in this life, whether or not they, they come to believe. Lord, help us be agents of grace and love and unity in the world. Lord, thank you for the opportunities we have to be peacemakers. Lord, thank you that it's, you connected that to our identity, that those who are peacemakers are blessed that they are called children of God. And, and that is what we are. We're your children. Lord, you, you made us your children by tearing down the division between us and yourself, Lord, on the cross. So now help us to go and tear down the division between us and other people. Lord, help us not to see that as an optional add-on to the gospel, but as a necessary, a necessary expression of the gospel in your world. And may you get all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said before, we're in, we're in Mark 8. So if you're there in your Bible, um, we'll start in, in verse 1. And we're going we're gonna to ask and we're going to see uh, through here that to, to see Jesus clearly. Remember, that's Mark's central question. Who is Jesus? And so we want to see him clearly uh, so that we are... Um, ready for what God has for us. So I'm going to start in verse one, and I'm going to read just the first few verses and make some comments as we go. So here we go. Verse one, in those days, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. And some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Well, how many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he said that these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then he, they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So Jesus and his disciples in this scene, they're again uh, on one of the remote shores of the Sea of Galilee over on the eastern side. Uh, he's teaching the crowds in an area called the Decapolis. And that is uh, the same area where he had gone and delivered the man who was demon-possessed um, and sent, them into the, sent the demons into the pigs. Same, same region. 
And, and if you remember that story back in Mark uh, chapter four, um, sorry, chapter five, as soon as that man was delivered and freed from the demons, he, uh, Jesus says, you know, go back and, and tell the people in your region. And, and these, are, these are all Gentiles, they're not Jews. Um, tell them how much that Jesus is, that I've done for you, that God has done for you. And so that's what he does. And, and so it's no surprise that when Jesus shows up in this area, again, there's, there's a crowd that's flocking to hear him. Um, every time that people come to get near Jesus, they experience his, what, what I would call his more than enough, his more than enough. Um, remember the story last week of the woman from Tyre that she was, um, came to Jesus and asked him to deliver her daughter who was also, um, had a demon. And Jesus sort of kind of, um, not tells her off, but, but sort of tests her faith and, and says, look, I, I came for the Jews, for the children, and not, not for the, the dogs, the, the, the Gentiles. And she says, well, even the, even the Gentiles can eat some of the crumbs under the table. And he says, because of that answer, because of your faith, uh, your daughter is, is, is healed, is delivered. Jesus is always, has, always has more than enough, more than enough leftovers and he can do it again with a few loaves of bread here. Mark's emphasis um, is slightly different than when we saw the same kind of miracle in chapter six. Remember, this is not a, a rerun. This is not a retelling of the same event. This is a different event, but very similar where he's, take, he's fed a whole crowd of people with just a few items of food. But the account, the earlier account in chapter six began with Jesus having compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what's he do? As a result of his compassion, he sits and he begins to teach them. Here, Jesus' compassion is tied directly to the fact that they're hungry. So his compassion moves him to feed them. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. He says that directly to the disciples. They've been here for three days. They're out of food. He was concerned that everybody was so physically weak that if they got up to go home, that they would, he said they'd pass out uh, on the way. He wants to fill up not only their spiritual lack, but their physical lack as well. Jesus' compassion extends to both physical and spiritual needs. And the disciples are a bit fixated here on the lack. They're like, Jesus, come on. Again, where can every, anyone get enough bread uh, to feed this crowd in this desolate place. I mean, come on, Jesus, we're in Adelaide. It's five o'clock on a Sunday and I'm not going to the IGA because it's too expensive. We can't do this. This is an impossible situation. So unless you can make food out of nothing, then we're stuck. Unless you can make something out of nothing, Jesus, we're stuck. Well, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna do it again. He's gonna take a few small loaves, seven loaves, and a couple of fish, and he's gonna multiply it to feed thousands of people. This time, many of the people were Gentiles, not just Jews. So Jesus' abundance extends to them as well. You know, whenever something gets repeated like this in the Bible, then you know it's important. Uh, when, I, when I spoke on Mark 6, I told you this, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection that's recorded in all four gospels. And in Matthew and here in Mark, there is this second um, story of the feeding of the 4,000. So really there's six times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John where we see Jesus feeding a crowd from nothing. So what's, what's Mark's overall point? 
Why does he include this second episode as well? I think the answer to that will become clear in the next section when Jesus has a little conversation with his disciples who don't get it. Um, And the point is this, that whenever there's lack, Jesus always addresses that lack with more than enough. Every single time people encounter Jesus and they come looking, they come hungry, they come away satisfied. Every single time, again and again and again, there's always more than enough. Always more than enough food. Always more than enough joy. More than enough life to go around. Always. That's anybody who comes to Jesus to receive. They receive more than enough. So what does it take to receive this more than enough from Jesus? What, what, what do I need to bring? What do you need to bring to receive more than enough from Jesus? Really, the only thing you have to bring is a humble awareness that you don't have enough. You don't have anything to contribute to the equation, really. You and I, we can't find enough. We can't be enough. We can't do enough. We can't manufacture enough. We can't even dream up enough. But Jesus can because he's the creator who made everything out of nothing. And he can do it again and again and again. His everything is always more than enough. So to receive from Jesus is to first admit that we don't have enough, which seems simple enough, right? But it's, it's really not. Our hearts resist doing that. Even the disciples here, they'd seen Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle, and they still could not face up to the reality that they were not enough. They did not have the resources to address the situation in front of them. They didn't have even the, um, the ability to understand what Jesus was, was teaching. Their hearts were confused and, 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 and not understanding. And it's frustrating. But you know what was frustrating for them became a perfect opportunity for Jesus to step into their lack. They needed to come to Jesus with empty hands and so do, so do you and I. I wonder how many of you have ever had this experience where um, you have like a restaurant or that you really, really like, and maybe it's just your mom's kitchen, um, but you like it so much that you have to kind of prepare yourself to, to go there. Like you might skip a meal or two or three so that you are hungry enough so you can eat just an amazing amount of food. I know, I know maybe you don't do this in Australia because it's, it's really expensive, but let me tell you where I grew up in America, there's all these places that are like really cheap and nasty and they're all you can eat. And people will do that. People will skip meals and go so they can get as much food for their money as they possibly could get. Like some restaurants will do these deals where it's like, you know, if you can eat like a quarter of a cow's worth of beef, then we'll give you your meal for free. And so people will try to do it. And if you you don't quite make it, they'll give you at least like a free plastic bag for when you get sick on the way home. There's a lot of these kinds of places in America. Um, But that's not the point. I want you to think about the last time, though, you were that hungry, like that you were that hungry. And, and what was it like for those first one or two mouthfuls of food after you break that, that fast from eating? That food tasted pretty good. Um, I think the point here is this. 
that a lot of times we're not able to taste and see how good Jesus is. We're not able to appreciate his more than enough because our, we're so full of other things, things of the world, things of the flesh, the Bible calls them. And we've got to be willing and able to resist those things, to put those things to death, that we might fill ourselves up on the things of Christ. Jesus does, does that here. He, he says, he's teaching them by experience. He taught them for three days without feeding them. Three days. He, he intentionally lets them get hungry. We saw that again when I preached Mark 6. I quoted from Deuteronomy 8 that says that very thing. He says, God led them into the wilderness, his people, to humble them. To make, he made them hungry on purpose. He led them into a situation of lack and suffering on purpose so that they would learn to crave the word of God. He does the same thing for us. You know, he is the one that satisfies our hunger, but if you've never really experienced sustained hunger, you, you probably don't know that. Sustained, sustained suffering teaches us things which is why God uses it so often to accomplish his purposes in us. But we don't like that. We're in a, we live in a world that avoids suffering at all costs. We don't see any good in it. Sustained suffering can be a grace. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, I was listening the other day to a conversation between two pastors. Um, Guy Mason, who pastors City on a Hill Church over in Melbourne, another Acts 29 church, and uh, Leance Crump Jr., who's a, uh, an African-American pastor over in Atlanta, Georgia. And they were talking about what's going on in the world, talking about current events and some of the racial violence and tension and the history of racial discrimination in the U.S. and as well as here in Australia. It was a, a fascinating conversation. And I'd really encourage you to go listen to it or any of, the other, uh, any of their sermons because they're excellent, excellent preachers of God's word. Um, but one of the things that Leon said in that conversation that really, that really struck me, he said that, you know, the African-American community in the United States um, can teach us something. And that is um, the value, the benefit of sustained suffering that teaches us to lament, teaches us how to grieve well. And that's not saying that we should sort of celebrate the, the injustice and the suffering. No, not at all. We shouldn't seek it. We shouldn't celebrate it. But given that it's happened and that it has taught men and women how to grieve, a kind of grief that doesn't lead to despair, but rather leads to genuine repentance and action and, and re resolve to change, resolve for justice. This is the kind of lament that comes after seasons of sustained suffering. We need to learn how to do this well. We need to learn how to grieve well as God's people so that we can then get up with God's power and carry out his mission of justice in the world. Again, I'm not telling you to go out and seek out pain and suffering. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, speak out against injustice and speak up for the voiceless. But there is a truth in that, that pain and injustice in this life is unavoidable. One day it will be finished, but in this life it's unavoidable. So when it comes, don't despair. Ask to see Jesus more clearly in the midst of it. 
Ask for him to be your more than enough. That's how you learn to see him clearly. You know, if you want to see Jesus clearly, then welcome sustained suffering. Welcome it. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they've got a lot more to learn about the purpose of suffering. And that's going to be the huge emphasis of of the text last week. And it's going to be the last one in our series on Mark. But for now, let's move on from the satisfied crowds uh, to the unsatisfied Pharisees. Verse 11, they show up again, and guess what? They're not happy. Verse 11, here it is. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Now, as the readers of Mark, we're kind of supposed to laugh here at the irony. Like, Jesus has just fed thousands and thousands of people with nothing. He's healed countless people. And now you guys come asking for a sign. Where have you been? You've seen the signs. What more could you possibly want? You know, it reminds me of another parable that Jesus told. It's over in Luke 16, where it's a, there's a, man, a rich man who dies and he's in hell. And he's down there and it's, it's, he's in agony. And he says, he, he's talking to Abraham, who's sort of in heaven. And he says, hey, Abraham, hey, mate, would you mind sending somebody back to my relatives who are still alive and telling them how awful it is down here? And Abraham looks at him, he says, mate, even if somebody comes back from the dead, They've got the Bible. They're not going to believe. They're not going to believe. And their hearts are just so hard. It's a waste of time. And and that's really what we see with the Pharisees here. They're so hard. There's nothing that Jesus can say or do that will change and make them believe. And Jesus isn't happy about that. He's not gloating over this. He sighs deeply in verse 12. It's just this exhausted, angry, sorrowful sigh. He loves, oh, he loves the Pharisees, even his enemies. He don't want them to die, but they are so set on it. Let's go on, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they didn't have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? See, the Pharisees were dead set on not believing Jesus. His disciples here, though, they're not faring much better. They don't get it either. They've seen all the miracles from the front row. And look what happens here. Jesus is telling them, guys, you got to check your hearts. Your hearts are, are getting pretty cold. You, you don't understand who I am. See, they don't, they don't yet see why the Pharisees aren't the good guys. So when Jesus says this cryptic thing, he says, beware, guys, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They don't, they don't know what he means. They think he's 
annoyed at them for forgetting bread. You know, leaven in Jewish culture was almost always a symbol for sin and impurity. Paul makes this exact comparison in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He's telling the Christians in the church, he says, you got to go in, you got to clean out the old leaven. Clean out the old leaven. What he means is find people who are the false believers, the hypocrites, people who are not living the life that they claim to live, and you need to put them out of the church. You need to clean house. The leaven here, it represents sin. And you gotta get out, because otherwise if you don't do that, you don't address this problem in your midst, then it's just gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's gonna take down more and more people. The Pharisees, though, he says they're not often in Jewish culture associated with sin. They're the seen as the holy people. But Jesus says, you know what? These guys aren't the good guys. They're not the good guys. And the disciples just, they don't get it. See, what we see in the disciples here, it's not the cold, hard unbelief of the Pharisees, but it's a, it's a spiritual blindness that is slowly being undone, slowly being healed over time. It's a bit like us in our story, right? Jesus doesn't mince words, though. He's tough with them. He says, guys, why are you on about bread? Don't you get it? Do you have hard hearts too? He goes for the jugular, right? He quotes Isaiah 6 saying, you know, are you the people that have eyes but can't see? Are you the people that have ears that can't hear? Are you in danger of being consigned with the unbelievers forever in hell? I mean, he's pretty direct with them there. He says, guys, be careful. Your blindness may not be as bad as the Pharisees, but it's a lot worse than you think. And, and I think he can say the same thing to you and me. Even as Christians, we can be blind to who Jesus is. We can ignore his clear commands. We can ignore his words for a long time. But it's dangerous. He calls them here. Jesus calls him and us to do something very, very important. And it's to remember it's to remember, to remember the miracles. He says, guys, when I picked up, the, or when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets? 12, one for each of you to carry. How many, when I just fed the 4,000, how many baskets? Seven, one for every day of the week. What does that tell you about who I am? What does it tell you? Surely you cannot think that I'm mad at you for, for getting bread, because I can make bread out of nothing. You should know that by now. The Bible says you gotta remember, or Jesus says here, you gotta remember what God has done. You, gotta, you cannot forget. We do this in, in, our, in our own society. We, we go through some of our cultural traditions to remember the, what, the sacrifices that people have made historically, lest we forget, right? Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. He says, I want you to remember what I've done because you are so prone to forget. You know, there's a lot of parallels in this between how God treated and walked with his people back in the days of Moses. You know, we see God leading them through Moses out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. But he doesn't take them immediately in the promised land. He takes them where? Into the wilderness. There's this in-between time, 40 years wandering around. And the whole time, he's having to remind them again, over and over again, every year through the Passover celebration, every year through Moses uh, teaching them what God has done, because they're just going to forget. Every generation has to be reminded again and again 
And again, you see them in Exodus chapter 15. They've just come through the Red Sea. Their enemies have just been drowned in the sea. And then what happens? Like two days later, they don't have water and they're complaining. And then a couple of weeks after that, they don't have food. And they're like, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? See, that's how we are. We just, we forget. We go days, weeks without remembering. And we just, we're right back at square one. We're right back thinking that we're out. We've got to save ourselves. We forget the gospel. And so Jesus is teaching them to remember. And you know what? If you want to see Jesus clearly, if you want to know his will for your life, if you want to have assurance and peace, then you have to remember what he's done, both historically for God's people and in your life. Don't forget. Remember. Let's read the last passage of Mark 8 today, and it's all about seeing clearly. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes, laying his hands on him. He asked him, he said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So Jesus' disciples, they're back in the boat. Now they land back at Bethsaida, which is Peter's hometown. Once again, a man is brought by his friends to Jesus for healing. So, so far in Mark, let's, let's just remember for a second here. Jesus in Mark has healed a man that was demon-possessed. He healed Peter's mother-in-law there in Bethsaida who had a fever. He healed a man with leprosy. He healed a paralyzed man, a man with a broken hand. He healed a, a man possessed by a whole army of demons. He, uh, he healed a woman who had a chronic illness that caused her to bleed uncontrollably. He raised a young 12-year-old girl from the dead. He healed a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And now for the very first time, he's gonna heal a man who's blind. And this miracle counts unique because of the way Jesus does it. He takes him aside into a private location and he puts saliva, his own saliva, into this man's eyes. Not because Jesus had magical saliva. Uh, he just chooses to use a physical means to heal a physical ailment. And I think there's a, he has a teaching uh, purpose in this as well. In verse 24, he, he, he touches the man and he asks him if he can see. And the man says, well, I can sort of make out people, but they look like trees, they're very blurry. And then Jesus touches his eyes a second time and he can see perfect. Why does he do it this way? Well, we don't exactly know, but I could, we can speculate a little bit because there's some parallels with this, the way Jesus heals this blind man to the spiritual blindness that we see in the disciples and in you and me. See, we've encountered, they've encountered the power of Jesus, the call of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus over and over again, and yet they still can't see clearly. They still don't understand who he is. They're gonna have to have some more well-timed questions directed at them before they really begin to get it and see clearly. And we're gonna see some clarity happening. The light bulb is gonna come on for these guys next week, but even then, not fully. It's a process for all of us to really come to grasp or come to grips with who Jesus is. You know, I think there are some times when I wish that Christian discipleship was more instantaneous, like microwave style. Like you and I, we could go to a Christian conference for a day and we'd be fully mature. 
Or we could memorize one or two Bible verses and that's it. We just, we never waver, we never sin, we never have the desire to sin ever again. See, that's not how it works. Christian discipleship is all about a daily dependence on Jesus. It's as much about the journey as it is individual moments of victory. You know, I can uh, kick my heels up and relax until Jesus comes back because, you know, I don't have to depend on him. But that's not, that's not what Christian discipleship should be, is it? Jesus uses even our failures, even our ignorance, even our inability to understand, to make us more hungry for him, to make us depend on him. You know, one day we'll see everything clearly. We, one of my favorite verses on uh, in discipleship is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says this, we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Every time we get little glimpses of who Jesus is now, that's how we become more like him. That's how we grow. That's how we become more mature. That's how we have peace. That's how we have joy. That's how we become useful. But we got to stick with it. We got to stick with it. We can't give up. We can't look for quick fixes, easy answers, and shortcuts to discipleship. It is a lifelong journey with Jesus. And he, he wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't have it any other way. If you want to see Jesus clearly, then you got to stick in it with the stick with it for the long haul. You know, I can remember as a kid having a telescope. Not a fancy one, but one of those ones that my parents probably bought from like Toys R Us. Um, I can remember the first time I saw the moon through the lens. Now, if you've done it before, you'll know the first task is just kind of finding it in that little viewfinder. It's not easy. And when you, when you first kind of get a glimpse, what does it look like? It's kind of this fuzzy gray blob of a thing. But all it takes is to turn those focus knobs just a few millimeters and instantly you start seeing the, the moon the way you've never seen it before. You can make out the, the craters and the, 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 you know, the different colors of the moon in real time. I mean, you may have seen it. I may have seen it in photographs before, but here I'm looking at it live. And it's an amazing thing to see clearly for the first time, something so amazing. Some of you, you know, our, our understanding our experience of Jesus is, is very blurry, it's dull, it's gray. Maybe we heard about it we, in pictures from our parents or from other people. And you need to grab hold of God's means to see clearly, to adjust the focus. You need to welcome sustained suffering as God's grace to you. You need to go back and remember the things that he has done in the past. Go back and search the scriptures and remember the things he has done in your life. And you'll learn to see Jesus clearly when you do. You need to ask God to help you be ready to, for, the whole, for the journey, for the lifelong journey with him. When you do, there will be moments of seeing him clearly. There'll still be misunderstanding and difficulties along the way as we learn to depend on him and walk with him hand in hand. But you'll be more satisfied with him every single day than anyone or anything else. That satisfaction, that joy will be so contagious that other people will notice. The question I have is, do you want that? Do you want to see him? Do you want to see him clearly? Do you want to have what he can give you? 
Or are you just happy with eyes that can see sort of secondhand? Let me say to you that Jesus, seeing Jesus clearly is a lot better than seeing the moon. It's what you were created for. It's why you have eyes to see him. Do you want to? Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you've given us eyes to see. Lord, that though we were once blind, Lord, by your grace, we've been saved. We've been given eyes that can see what's true, see what's beautiful, that we can see you, Jesus, that you are the exact representation, the exact representation of the invisible God. Help us to have eyes that see you, that remember you, that celebrate you and and, and worship. And may it be the worship that you alone deserve, Lord, and may it be contagious. Oh God, we so look forward to the day when we see you face to face. But until then, until then, Lord, give us eyes to see you clearly, as clearly as we can in this life. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.